Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week, we haven't reconciled how do you actually create an equitable public square that allows people to have a voice who couldn't have a voice, like allows us to find candidates that would never have been able to get the kind of media attention in a normal mainstream, quote unquote, media environment, but they can use social media to talk about their platform without allowing the worst dregs of society to also organize around misinformation or intimidation or racism or all the other kind of uh, bad isms. Caleb Gardner, in his more than a decade of experience in digital leadership, entrepreneurship, and social impact, has worked for a variety of organizations in the public and private sectors, including at prestigious professional service firms like Bain and & Company and Edelman. During the second Obama administration, he was the lead digital strategist for President Obama's political advocacy group, OFA. He brought his unique insights to growing one of the largest digital programs in existence with a million-strong email list and massive social media following, including the largest Twitter account in the world. Now, as a founding partner of 18 Coffees, a strategy firm working at the intersection of digital innovation, social change, and the future of work, he's helping forward-thinking companies and nonprofits adapt and evolve to meet the challenges of today's economy. He speaks, trains, and leads workshops around the world on topics related to change, including strategy in a mission economy, technology and innovation for a better world, and change management at the speed of digital. Caleb, you are live on the Tech Humanist Show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, everyone. So glad to be here. Me too. It gives us something to do while we're waiting for. <laughs> right. We got to we got to spin the wheels, manage our stress levels one <laughs> hey, way or another. Yeah. So that's my first question for you. Like, what have you been stress eating? <laughs> uh, I feel like uh, it is it is both fortunate and unfortunate, the intersection of Halloween and the election, because all we have at my house is leftover Halloween candy. <laughs> and so. It's just been one thing after another. I, I think there's been a couple times the last few days where I've literally like gotten sick by eating too much, oh, no. too much Halloween candy in one setting. That's sure. got to be so relatable. So this has been a cuckoo bananas cycle, which we knew it would be going into it. But what would you say are some lessons that you may already be taking away from this most recent campaign and election cycle? We need to get much, much better at polling for one thing. I mean, another cycle where the polling just was very, very off and off consistently in one direction, right? That's what that's what's so weird and frustrating about it. That that's one thing I take away, uh, and and is not an industry that I have worked in. I just know that it's an industry that me, like every other citizen paying attention to the election, relies on. And so, we're gonna have to get better at that. I mean, things that are more related to what you and I have talked about in our our spare time is. Uh, <laughs> continued rise of misinformation and disinformation, I think, domestically grown in the last year. You know, we were so worried about foreign interference the last time, and this time it's all kind of, hey, what's the what's the, uh, the phrase? It's all coming from within the house. Yeah, right? the call is coming from within the house. <laughs> yes, the call is coming from within <laughs> from the house. house. Yeah. Uh, so uh, th that's been really frustrating. And I think the, the tech platforms like Twitter and Facebook are beginning to wrap their heads around how to manage that. But again, it just took them so late in mm. to do it. I saw someone tweet today that, that doing the bare minimum of flagging how the Trump campaign is like claiming victory or saying stop yeah. the vote or like even putting a warning label on some of those about like the, the mistruths there. 
took so much convincing and it's it just feels like the bare minimum so there's so much that we have to do in terms of still just regulating you know the spread of misinformation on those platforms it's it's kind of crazy i mean it's it's happening in real time right now as people are chanting count the vote right. or stop counting the vote depending on what state you're in facebook groups are popping up like mobilizing those folks it's just it's not it's not good gate it's not great it is it is bonkers and what i wanted to ask you though is you know your, your first point about the polls i wonder do you, do you feel like it's too soon to say we need, I mean, obviously we need better polling because better polling will always be better, but do you feel like it's too soon to criticize the polling for this election cycle? Because we still haven't seen the full suite of results, right? I don't think it's too, yes, there's some things we still need to wait on, but I don't think it's too soon to know that, for instance, Sarah Gideon's polling in Maine was very off right. for a long time. Like there's, if for the presidential, yes, we gotta kind of wait and see how how off the you know margins actually are. But plenty of down ballot races, we know how wrong they were. And I think what's frustrating about people working on those campaigns is you make decisions based on the data points that you have. And if you're making decisions thinking that the election is going in one direction, it's actually going in another. You're not you know running the right kind of campaign that you actually need to run. And so I know it's really frustrated for frustrating for staff on the ground there. I think it's frustrating just for for me personally, as obviously having worked for Obama, you know, having one political lean versus another, it's frustrating for me that the polling errors, again, keep going in the same direction. And so that's just, it seems like something that we have not kind of wrapped our heads around or, or the, the polling industry specifically hasn't wrapped their heads around how to poll this electorate with Trump on the ballot in a correct way. Yeah, that's, a, that's really interesting. It does seem like there's going to need to be a reckoning with um, the level of candor that that poll, poll subjects have with pollsters and and why people may be um, more inclined to mislead and misdirect with their answers than they would be in in other situations. Yeah. I don't know if it's that they're misleading or if they're if the right people just are literally not picking up. Yeah. I mean, if you think about I think I heard this on a podcast the other day, they were thinking about if you've lost faith in government institutions or if you are disillusioned and you're looking for someone to kind of blow up the system, why would you answer the call of a pollster and like talk about that? Like you've given up on the entire system. So maybe you're not even answering that. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't know that that could be there. seems like there's a few plausible explanations, but it definitely just there's got to be a better system for this. I also just don't know if. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot from a digital strategy side of just how much every political cycle now feels like everyone burning each other's house down in terms of trying to get their fundraising goals, trying to get their messaging goals, trying to like run the campaign they need to run on top of everyone else running the campaign they need to run. It's become this kind of massive tragedy of the common situation where I now get because I'm on some like Democratic email list and some Democratic phone list. I now get emails and texts from a thousand different people yeah. every week, most of which I didn't sign up for. Like there's no opt in process to. And it's just I don't know if that's also turning people away. Like there's just there's a lot of soul searching. I think we need to do about how these campaigns run and what data points we're using to guide and make and make strategic decisions, I think. Yeah, that's a really good point, because it does seem like the email and text marketing has just been out of control this last cycle with, and I, just like you, I, I signed up, I donated to a, a handful of 
uh, down ballot races and then ended yeah. up on hundreds of mm -hmm. pack and super pack, you know, email distributions. And, and you can tell like you've, you've made it onto different ones because the tone is so different and they, they all have like varying levels of credibility that come across and, and hysteria and everything. So yeah. Yeah, a few years ago, I started adding, you know how in Gmail you can add, like, if you add the plus sign, you can add all kinds of, like, tags on right. your email, and you can actually track what email lists are being traded that way, because I would, I would add myself to, let's say, a Joe Biden email list, mm -hmm. and put just, like, a plus JB or something at the end of my email, so I would know that that was what email list I had signed up for. Yeah. And then when I got traded around on some of those super packs, I could actually tell where I originally got like where that email address came from and who was actually giving out some of that data. I used to do that for every email list I signed up for, but right. the, the political ones, I mean, it's just, I was just, really disciplined about cycle. that for a while too, but that's a, there's your first actionable takeaway audience. <laughs> use that, use that Gmail trick of the plus with the JV or whatever little shorthand yeah. you want to use for whatever thing you're signing up for. And at least that gives you some, transparency about why the heck am I receiving this many emails? And you don't get to do that with text messages, of course. So it's yeah, just, I know. It's just a banana Ugh. situation. So let me, let's talk a little bit about, I, I really want to get, I'll get to in a minute, I want to ask you about your experience uh, with Obama and OFA, but, but I want to talk about, you know, stay on this idea of what we're learning from this cycle. And one of the things that it feels like we're, uh, we can take away from this is the notion of, of building momentum off election cycle towards the kind of progress that you want to see. And it feels like sure. we we saw, you know, the, the push with the Sunrise Movement to the left and we saw, you know, a lot of you know, the, the Green New Deal and a lot of things that were pushing to the left and it, it forced the mainstream Democratic candidates to accept further left positions. And I would imagine that if, you know, if we were inclined toward the right, that we might say similar things happening there too. I think that it's been an interesting process of, of us learning uh, as political strategists or people who are adjacent to it or observing it, what it looks like to be, um, to be str strategic all the time and then to mm -hmm. use elections in a particular way. Are, are you thinking about that too? Is that, is that kind of one of the things you're taking away since some of the work you were doing did have to do with that kind of momentum building and advocacy and that seems really relevant to the work you do now? Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that, especially I think because this uh, moment as we've been waiting for votes to come in hasn't been as decisive. Like there wasn't a Tuesday night winner called where we could all go, oh, you know, that's over. Joe Biden's going to ride his coattails into the White House, you know, and I think if, if there had been a what felt more like a blue wave come through on Tuesday, I think it would have led to a lot more complacency than what we are mm -hmm. right now. It feels like there's a lot more work to do. And I actually think that's if there's a silver lining in this like stressful moment we're in. Mm -hmm. And if there's a silver lining in divided government, which it's increasingly looking like we are going toward, which is going to be very frustrating. It is that people aren't going to feel like, okay, now I'm done with my political life and I can go back to brunch. Like we're, we're all going to feel like we have to stay engaged. And I think that's the right, right call. I do think that there is, to your point, a lot of, in the political world, we say like in between cycle organizing happening mm -hmm. now a lot more than, than had been in the past, or at least a lot more that is surfaced through things like social media that we can see 
been had happening in the past. I also think that there's been really, really great infrastructure building in between cycles that has been happening. I'm sure it's been happening on both sides, but obviously having more views into things like what uh, Stacey Abrams did in Georgia. Like, there's a reason why Georgia is still not called right now, and it has a lot, uh, a lot of credit to her and uh, the organization she's built on the ground in Georgia. I think the reason why people had their eyes on Texas is a lot of the the work that Beto O'Rourke and other people have been doing to organize on the ground in Texas. So there's also this like, people feel like when you pour a lot of money into a state or race and then you don't win that race, it's wasted money. And actually, there's a lot of organization and infrastructure that gets built that you can actually use next time. And so these things take a few cycles to build up momentum to, to really make change. for. Boy, that's a really uh, hopeful and optimistic framing. And, and Stacey Abrams was 100% who I had in mind when I asked that question. And I also am thinking about, you know, a couple of maybe months ago at this point, Anand Garadardas did an interview with Noam Chomsky. And I remember the one thing I really took away with that was Noam saying, you know, it, it, the vote is a is a strategic move, like it's a chess move, and you have to use the in between vote to haunt the dreams of the the elected, yeah. of the politicians, right? Like, I, vote for Biden. He was saying basically like, and then haunt my dreams. Like, you know, make yeah. sure that you know you're coming back and you're just staying on the elected representatives. But I love that how you're positioning the idea of. You know, the of it is an investment of you know someone like Jamie Harrison, uh, you know, not not being able to to successfully mount a campaign against Lindsey Graham, that 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 is still an investment. That's that's yeah. potentially something that could could pay off in further. Makes the next fights. Jamie ha- Harrison be a lot easier to get to get over that threshold. One hundred percent. That's wonderful. I, what a, what an optimistic way to think about this. I, I understand. I realize, and I'm gonna. I'm just gonna say once uh, for this. I, I realize that this is uh, going to come off as highly partisan, and I, I sort of apologize to the <laughs> listeners and, and viewers who uh, don't 100% align with um, with my views or with maybe Caleb's views. Um, I I hope that there's still value in this discussion, and that you can take away you know some insights and some strategies that are useful to you. Um, but I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I definitely feel like I'm going to be pretty transparent about <laughs> my political <laughs> views on this. I'm sure Caleb will as well. By the way, it's a hard of, moment not to be. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so this idea of, you know, kind of taking a, even a loss, uh, a short term loss and thinking about it as a long term strategy. To me, that feels like it, it may even be a good pivot into into thinking about the digital organizing process and practices that align with the best outcomes, like thinking about how to, to build momentum toward the long-term outcome mm-hmm. that you want to see. What, what have you learned in the years of, I mean, first of all, as being a strategist and you know, a digital strategist, and then you know, working associated, if you're affiliated with the highest office in this country, and uh, coming away from that and starting your own business. You know, there, there's a lot of ways in which I feel like you've taken some understanding of what a short-term win or loss looks like and then and, and moving whatever you have into the long-term. Can you talk yeah. to us about that? Yeah, totally. It, it's related, it actually uh, relates back a lot to what we were just talking about, about kind of the, the massive kind of digital tragedy of the commons that happens every election cycle where everyone is just kind of fighting for every dollar and fighting for every attention of every voter to get out and volunteer and do xyz all that stuff really matters the reason why i get so nervous about things like list swapping and 
texting people who didn't ask any kind of permission for it and, you know, uh, fake emails with like 300% matches. And you're like, what are you even talking about? 300% matches is not even thing is because it actually makes it a lot harder to build relationships over the long term. You basically use the cycle as a campaign manager, as a strategist for that cycle. All you care about is what happens on election day. So I totally get like at, for your goals as a campaign, you are like, I am aimed at one thing and I will do whatever it takes to get my candidate in office. Totally get that. But what happens is in between cycles, we're not building relationships like we actually should to be able to do the kind of long term organizing work that you're just talking about in terms of Noam Chomsky being able to say like, OK, we got Biden in office. Now, how are we going to hold his feet on the, uh, to the fire for things like climate change, for the minimum wage, for whatever issue it might that might come up? And make sure we, we're moving the Overton window to where we need it to be for totally, the cycle. Totally, yeah. That work is a lot harder and it's a lot more invisible. I've been more encouraged in the last four years because you've seen organizations pop up like the Sunrise Movement or like Swing Left that are trying to do some more long-term relationship building with their volunteer base and with their donor base that they can then activate for on behalf of campaigns and, you know, be a little bit both kind of in that holding the feet to the fire advocacy world, but also in the electoral world when there's a specific candidate that they want to get into office. But those worlds don't always align perfectly with their goals for exactly the reasons I was talking about. One has long-term relationship building goals. One has short-term, you know, very specifically focused goals. I think if, if I were in the kind of democratic strategy ecosphere still, that's one thing. I mean, I, we were even talking about that dynamic back in 2014, 2015, about the relationships between advocacy groups, organizations like the DCCC, you know, uh, electoral organizations, campaigns, and how, you know, those goals often clashed and how we supported each other and how we kind of took attention away from each other. I don't think anyone's really figured that part out yet. But to me, that's the we have to figure out how we can keep everyone's kind of wrapped attention on the goalposts when it comes to like the midterm elections in 2022 and taking the Senate back or else we're going to have divided government for a long time. We're not going to get anything done. I think what's tough about the spot that we're in is that our, our issues are really big and urgent. And if we do end up going into divided government, we are going to be making progress by increments and it's going to feel really frustrating to people who just spent a ton, ton of time and energy into getting Joe Biden into office. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be some like realistic vision setting with like what we can achieve in specific amounts of time. That like time dynamic to me is one that I think about a lot about just like horizons of progress. You know, Obama used to talk about like that old King quote about um, the arc of just, uh, what is it? The arc of, um, the it's arc long, of history bends toward justice, right, yes, but it bends toward justice. Like we are so in our immediate, like if we don't get Medicare for all passed tomorrow, then the whole Democratic Party is a failure. And it's like, wait, oh, hold on. This is actually a lot harder than you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> so we need to like, we, there, we need to reframe our expectations because we, we, we now live in a world that like wants satisfaction immediately. And this work is hard and takes a really, really long time. Yeah, it's hard to, I think, maintain that appropriate balance of an activist's urgency and a historian's mm -hmm. sense of perspective. But it does yeah. it does seem like those are two very valid, you know, kind of voices to have on, on each shoulder, <laughs> you know, kind of guiding. And, but like, 
I actually really get why the activist urgency is taking such prominence now, because some of the issues we're facing, I mean, let's take away the fact that we're in a global pandemic and literally people are dying, like, from mismanagement. But climate change, speaking of the Sunrise Movement, is becoming more urgent by the day, and we have not taken big, bold action. So, like, I can understand why you as a young, like, Greta Thunberg, like, climate activist are like, we are not doing enough and beating that drum every single day. But like, how do we reconcile that with compromise and like the kind of democratic government that we have? I don't know. That's that's a really, really tough challenge. I think, you know, I wonder about something like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals uh, and, and that that's a framework of change toward a time frame of 2030. Um, mm-hmm. Do you ever imagine that there could be something that's parallel specifically for the U.S., thinking about the challenges that we need to mount within our own context and our own borders, in, in alignment with those, of course, because we are part of the world, but, but to specifically address the context of our own country, who would be the body that would define those goals? And <laughs> I have something at my door. <laughs> and who, who would be the body that would define them and who would be the body that would that would measure them and is there is there something that you can imagine taking place that's like good, that yeah that's a good question i mean i i i want to i want to say that there's anything that we could do if we actually had the energy and you know efficacy as a governing body in a democracy to do it who actually would do it probably i mean this is this is a trouble with having an administration that turns over every four years right like this the paris climate accords should have been that yeah. and then we left it literally what two days ago and now if biden becomes back in administration we're going to rejoin it so much of because congress has been so deadlocked so much of our governing has been by executive order and that's just it's not a it's not a good way to your point to do long-term strategy right so right so speaking of of um decisions that get made now that that uh, maybe have consequences further down the road i i wonder about you know how, how do you think about the types of strategies and tactics that uh, Obama and his campaign used in, in the initial election and then specifically in the re-election. And then of course, you know, your, your group taking over and, and kind of cultivating those digital yeah. assets. I think uh, there, there seems like there's a way to look at that that says that was a really wonderful thing because it, it got us this uh, wonderful administration. Uh, it's also possible to say, you know, those tactics were co-opted by by the Republican Party, and then were expanded and sure. were co-opted by bad actors and by foreign actors and and uh, so on. So, is there a, is there a way to put this into context that we think about creating uh, using digital organizing pr- practices that only align with the best outcomes that that you know maybe are intentionally reduced, like the, the harms are reduced within them, the potential harms mm-hmm. when they're used in different capacities or at different scales. Do you think about that? Yeah, I, there's a couple of things that I think about in terms of what how we ran long-term digital organizing efforts and what I'll just kind of broadly paint as a brush is like the political ecosystem that we have right now. The two, it, it, the easiest way to think about it, I think, is in terms of how we used social media and how we used email. Mm-hmm. Like that's the that's the most concrete ways. 
I'll, I'll put SMS aside because I think it was less mature medium than it has become now. Sure. And also there's still a lot of really random telecom like overlay like problems with that industry that are like have not caught up with what is possible. It's very strange anyway. But like take those two mediums, how social has changed just in the past few years. I mean, we were when we were running the Obama team, I, I, I like to say it was bridging the gap between when people really saw it as a potent political force. And when people went, oh, that force doesn't necessarily mean for good. Like the, between the years of like 2013 and 2016 is when it's like Arab Spring, Obama's reelection, you know, like when people were like, oh, my God, look at the power of social media to do all this good. And then 2015, 2016, Donald Trump uses it to get elected, Russian disinformation. I mean, like so all the stories. And in between that, you've got this story from Facebook. I don't know if you remember this about um, emotional manipulation that mm -hmm. they did at that big study 2014, where they were like, look how much we can affect, you know, people's emotional outcomes just by tweaking our algorithm. And by 2016, they were like, just kidding, we never said that. Right. But that was, the, that was the like environment that we were operating in in social media. And so the where we are now, again, is just we like the potential is there, but we haven't reconciled. Like, how do you actually create an equitable public square that allows people to have a voice who couldn't have a voice, like allows us to find candidates that would never have been able to get the kind of media attention in a normal like mainstream quote unquote media environment, but they can use social media to like talk about their platform without kind of allowing the kind of worst dregs of society to also organize around misinformation or, you know, intimidation or racism or all the other kind of uh, bad isms. So that's, that's on the social media side. That's, that's, uh, that's what people are dealing with today on the email side. It's a lot of what we were talking about in terms of people have now just taken to all kinds of kind of crazy, voter match, you know, uh, donation match kind of uh, fairy tales, uh, list swapping. And it's just it's I'm I'm frustrated by it because we put so much editorial thought into like, how do we create a theory of change with what we are doing here that explains to people this policy issue, tries to distill it down, explains why if they take this particular action we're asking them to take, it matters right now. Mm -hmm. um, and like it, paints it back to the bigger picture of how we're trying to achieve this policy goal together. And it doesn't, I'm not going to, I wouldn't say the Biden campaign did this, but this is just a kind of general painting the, br the brush of like the political ecosystem we're in. There's just so many people that don't, that don't treat their list with the kind of respect that we try to treat it, treat people with and try to like actually build like trusted relationships over time. So those are the two things that I'm the most concerned about going forward. And I don't, I just to be honest, like, I don't think there's easy answers to either of those things. Yeah. Like it is, there's a reason why people keep doing the like crazy email matching, fundraising, like sending a thousand emails a day. There's a reason why we get text messages from all kinds of different campaigns and political action groups is because it is a way, if you do it enough at scale to get people to do things, like you can reach your goals if you do this. The problem is, again, it just burns everyone's house down, right? Yeah. But I like what you're pointing out about, you know, this carefully crafted theory of change and the narrative building and everything that that feels like uh, it's it's a really object lesson for anyone working in any kind of capacity where they're trying to build community and they're trying to build, yeah. you know, long term momentum to something that, you know, even when you think about, I, I think a lot about 
what's the difference between misinformation and disinformation? And, sure. you know, obviously, you know, you can talk about an intent and with disinformation, it's intention to deceive and, and misdirect and everything. With misinformation, it may simply be that something sensationalistic has caught on and, you know, you, you it's yep. impossible to, to rein it back in once people get excited about it. Uh, but if you, if you're, dealing with it seems to me from what what you're what you've just laid out if you're dealing from within a model that has a robust theory of change and a robust narrative it feels like that might create a better environment from which to navigate those types of of, of, of the, the misinformation and the disinformation that you would be in a position because you have cultivated trust, because you have cultivated this community, right, to be able to combat that better, does that just seems like it makes yeah. sense, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there were there were specific issues for for our sake. Just taking back to the example of the team we ran, there were specific things that came up in 2015, 2016, around let's say trade policy, where there were a lot of rumors going around about trade policy in the Obama administration navigating uh, trade policy with Asia that that they specifically had to say, like, does this does what you were hearing about how I'm navigating trade policy sound like Obama to you? Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it was that, it, like where the president had to trade on some of that trust um, with the progressive uh, community. Mm-hmm. The one thing about your what you were saying about um, the trans transferability of that uh, model is we have actually taken it as 18 copies and applied very similar persuasion kind of long-term relationship building tactics in what I will call the change management space within corporate environments. You know, so, just so kind of- about that, because right? I'd love to hear yeah. more about how you're, how you're finding that to be. Like, obviously it seems like, uh, you know, t- targeting and affinity building and coalition building and that sort of thing does feel like it has direct transferability into, into it that. It does, sort of especially work. for larger organizations where, again, right, rumor persists, like the, the penchant for like rumor mill to create its own kind of misinformation ecosystem when you're trying to do a big change initiative, right? Like what we've tried to try to get across to our, our um, clients is persuasion is kind of, it's not just a tool in your tool build. It has to be like one of the things you are doing constantly. Like in the media environment that we are in, when we are inundated with a thousand different messages every day, a thousand different media points, we're all carrying around like the world's most powerful communication devices known to man in our pockets every single day. Like you have to be actively bringing people along, telling them a story, trying to make them understand what their part or their role in that story has to be in order to make change in your organization and kind of turn the Titanic of your organization toward any kind of end goal. Like the, the, there's a lot of um, applicability there. We're doing a big project with United Way Worldwide right now that involves, you know, basically a big transformation effort within the United Way network. And if you know anything about the United Way network, it is very community centric and very disintermediated in terms of there being United Way of Greater Chicago, United Way of the Tr- Twin Cities, United Way, you know, like it, they they have built this model that has worked really well to get to know the local communities, but hasn't really worked that well to support each other as a network. And so as they try to come in and create a network wide United Way vision and about, you know, sharing technology, sharing data about, um, you know, making the whole network work better together, they've had to do a lot of persuasion, a lot of convincing 
to these local United Ways and their boards and their staff about the direction that they're moving in. That's cool. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I, I think it just it proves that you need to know what you believe in organizationally. Yes. Right. There has to be. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about mission driven or purpose driven companies. Uh, but but I find that even in my work, when I'm talking to companies about, you know, using uh, data and tech to improve human experiences, but also be become more successful. So often we have to start from this place of talking about purpose. And I always say like, it isn't necessarily this touchy feely thing. It is really about having a strategic organizing principle for the company about why do you even exist and what are you trying to accomplish? But even that feels like it's, it's a little esoteric or, you know, off of what people are normally thinking when they're thinking about a company or about how a company operates. So it, it's, it's wonderful yep. to hear you bring it back to, you know, in order to, to get that momentum and create that kind of advocacy and, and community building, it has to come from this clear place of what do you believe in? What are you about? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes. That's brilliant. Yeah. hundred percent. So, Hey, I, you know, I, I wonder about, um, you know, just thinking about your personal journey, when you ended up uh, going to work for OFA, how did, how did that happen, first of all? Uh, so I live in Chicago, and the Obamas obviously have deep roots in Chicago and ran both, both the 2008 and 2012 campaign from here. And I, you know, it was really a just matter of being in the right place at the right time, having met a, a bunch of the people from the 08 campaign that went on to work on the 12 campaign, having worked with many of them when I was here at working at Edelman in Chicago, uh, you know, just having, it was very strange. I mean, one, on the one hand, being in the right place at the right time in terms of our senator from Illinois going on to be president and just having to live in his backyard. But on the other hand, actually like working with and getting to know a lot of the people that helped make him president in between the two presidential campaigns. And so, you know, serendipity, I will give, give a lot to that on, on top of the fact that just, you know, I kept in touch with a lot of the people that worked on the campaign and tried to tried to help from a volunteer perspective, just like pitching in and, you know, contributing ideas and content wherever I could. Did you, had, had you grown up with or, you know, gone through school thinking that you might be any, in any way involved in politics or political organizing in your no. lifetime? Really? So, uh, well, well, what I'll say is I majored in history when I was in college. And music, uh, right? That's what I saw on your LinkedIn. Yeah. I majored in history and minored in music. So clearly I had like a career path in mind. My parents were thrilled. But I know what's weird about it is, you know, I didn't have a career path in mind, but also the career that I've had couldn't have existed when I went to college. Like, it's just, it's it's a very strange thing to think about. Like, there wasn't a major in digital strategy, right. you know, in back when I was in college. So I guess it, on the one hand, it kind of, it, it helped me big, be a more, big picture thinker that liked to look at kind of long-term trends and kind of being at the intersection of a presidential campaign and a president and this shift that was happening in society around digital communications, the right place at the right time, you know, that was, both of those things were fascinating to me for many reasons. Yeah. I wonder too about, you know, that, that must've been in some ways you were working, you were working in DC, I'd imagine, right? Or were you working out in Chicago? I was working in Chicago, oh, just commuting back and forth to D.C., yeah, here and there. So and, and that I, also a lot since I have a family here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, I was just gonna say, it, it seems like that's a stressful uh, lifestyle, I would imagine. And since it's been such a stressful time with you know the pandemic and this election and so on. Now the, they're seeing my gray hair now. Yeah. That your... <laughs> I'm just you know looking at my own and, and thinking about all of us. I, I feel like you must be able to teach us a thing or two about handling stress and maintaining calm in high stakes moments. And that feels like, the question I really am building up to ask you is, you know, really, when do you think about and what do you think about that we need to do to foster more of a sense of like balance and proportion when we're uh, dealing with these high stakes moments like we are now, like waiting for a tight election to be called. And since especially we've, we've already been cautioned that results could take longer than, uh, than we are used to, it could be days or longer. and. Um, people just seem determined to be stressed out. Uh, but I don't think it's just our <laughs> fault. I think, you know, the, the handling of the story in the media isn't, isn't helping, like the jittery needles in the New York Times data visualization, like oh God, yeah. PTSD from 2016 for many of us. And, uh -huh. uh, and I also don't think there's been a, a strong showing from many of our top institutions to set like a clear-headed example about this. So do, what do you think about in terms of what we most need societally, culturally, maybe individually, you know, to, to help counterbalance this and, and help manage our skills at this. Yeah, it's interesting that you say societally, culturally, individually, because I actually think given how individualized a lot of our media experience is right now, we can't think about those separately anymore. Right. Like we actually have, to, we do have to talk about like, what is our own individual responsibility to be critical about the media we read to be critical about what we share and don't share online with how do we build institutions and, and stop gaps in our media environment and our technology environment to make sure that we are controlling the system and making sure the system is healthy, right? In terms of what can we do to, to accurately set expectations, you know, it's funny, it's, I think the news media, um, and I'll paint a broad brush with sure. like, you know, most of the mainstream outlets, did a relatively good job setting expectations about how long the counts were going to take. Like, I actually think that they talked about it quite a bit in the lead up. The responsible campaigns out there talked about it quite a bit in the lead up, trying to set expectations. I think the hard thing is we are just, we just have muscle memory about when we get to know these things. I think that's what's been, if I were to, to you know, point at why I was stressed out Tuesday night. <laughs> yeah. I think it was a, <laughs> I think it was a combination of having muscle memory of just knowing as soon as we can on election night or late into election night, and like setting our own expectations unrealistic high, unrealistically high about for me, you know, a reputation of the last four years and wanting there to be such a powerful kind of blowback that we could kind of gain some of our global reputation back. Like that's what I think I'm still a little bit grieving that that narrative didn't come out of mm -hmm. Tuesday night, but you know, it's, it's, you're, you're absolutely right that at the end of the day, if things go like we think they're going to go, Biden could win over 300 electoral votes and more than 7 million in the popular vote. So like it could actually be a pretty strong reputation uh, or like, backlash against the sitting president, which is actually pretty hard to, to unseat an incumbent president. Right. right. But it's not going to feel that way because we didn't get it like immediately. Right. Right. No, that's that's fair. I, I, it feels like it, it's maybe circumstantial in some ways because of the pandemic, because of the, the shift 
many states had to make uh, on the fly almost to you know yeah. absentee and, and early voting that uh, that they weren't prepared or that they encountered different kinds of resistance to trying to get prepared and and so you know certainly there's some some de yeah. uh, some unpacking to do about that. Um, I've actually been really fascinated the last few years with um, just thinking about our perception of time in general. Like, have you ever heard of the return trip effect? This yeah. like psycho psychological phenomenon that like, if you're going to Disneyland, this is always the example people use. If you're going to Disneyland, it feels like forever. Like you've got it on the counter. It's in three weeks as three weeks take forever. And then you finally get there. And when you're going home, you're like, oh, that didn't take long at all. Like, our perceived like anticipation warps our sense of time and more than we rec rec recognize that it does. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about how 2020 has been all about anticipation. When is this pandemic going to end? When are my kids going to get to go back to school? When are we finally going to get to this election? And how much that's kind of warped our satisfaction with getting any answers to any of those things, I think has a big effect. Yeah, that's a really smart observation. And it also, it's, it's been my experience that um, that trauma warps your perception of time, and we're all yes. living through various kinds of trauma. Uh, so <laughs> that's part of it too, for sure. Uh, I remember when I was uh, working at a startup in, in California years and years ago, there was a colleague of mine who was really into physics, and we were out at some some restaurant for lunch where they had the the paper placemats and crayons that kids could draw, and he was drawing something, and he said something like, um, or I think I was drawing something, <laughs> the crayons, but he said something out loud that was like, they expanded time, but compressed space, so it was okay. And whatever that it was he was talking about, I remember just latching onto that phrase, and it's been kind of a constant companion of mine for all these years, this idea that, you know, at the times when uh, our perception of time changes because of trauma or because of stress or because of whatever. Our perception of space also changes in the sense that mm -hmm. we perceive less of the horizon or more of the horizon, you know, kind of in indirect proportion. Yeah. And it, it changes our, our sense of balance and perspective. And I think that yes. is something that we don't talk about often enough because we know that there's this sense that 2020 has felt both interminable and short in weird ways. Like it still feels like it's March and it also feels like how can this possibly be, you know, Thursday already? Right, yes. It, it's it's a bizarre phenomenon, but I think we just, we don't do enough under uh, talking and understanding about human perception of things like time. So that's yeah. a really unexpected departure Because we've us. been taught to think about time <laughs> in these like incremental like, you know, we've literally broken up our days into these like very measurable increments. And that's what we think of as time. Yeah. And, and I mean, even the notion of 2020, the arbitrary year as like this bucket of evil or this, <laughs> this, this <laughs> bucket of, you know, bad things that are happening is of course right. absurd. And it's, there's no validity to the idea that 2020 has any malice in it for us. Yeah. There's no morality associated with 2020 the year. <laughs> but it is, it's a really tempting way to, to conceive of things. And so I, I guess I wonder, I don't know, maybe, maybe politics needs philosophers a little more to be able to, you know, bring a lot of these different kinds of ideas together to be able to understand, you know, that the activist urgency and the historian's sense of like long perspective and the ability to tell this theory of change narrative and all this stuff it feels like 
that's a lot of what you sound like you've been able to do in your career is bring together some some disparate ideas maybe having a music co-major as <laughs> part of it did you also do maybe. some sort of like um study abroad thing i was trying to figure out what this other i did yeah what what was yeah, that yeah i studied abroad in florence my uh senior year i think yeah yeah was, you got that i mean amazing florence. experience yeah yeah you got that uh that florence art perspective and it 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 shaped you, it seems like. Yeah, I was, I was I was talking to someone recently about how travel creates empathy. You know, like it literally being immersed in other cultures, getting to meet other people creates like more empathetic people. And I was I was actually thinking recently about how that may be one of the things that we missed most about 2020. It's just literally like we have to somehow become still empathetic when we can't actually be around people. Maybe that's a good test. Maybe that's the thing we most, and, and to bring this around back into, you know, how digital tools help us as humans. Like how can we use the digital tools that we have at our disposal to create more empathy if we can't travel and we can't be in person and we can't have these, you know, kind of nuanced meetings with one another where we're picking up on sensory cues that help us understand each other and have more empathy with each other. So yeah. I guess what that leads into is my question to you is what, what can we do with digital tools and with technology and with data to create I mean, on one hand, a better digital citizenship platform. Like, what? where do you go there, first of all? And then I guess, you know, feel free to expound from there into, like, how do we use it in, in broader senses, too, to create more community and more connection? That's such a good question. And, and it's, it's uh, thinking about it in terms of a digital citizenship platform almost makes me think, like, if you were running for office and you wanted to run on the platform of, like, creating better digital citizens, what would you what would you say? I think, first of all, it's a tragedy that we haven't started teaching civics and citizenship across the board in a way that you know reflects the current kind of connected reality that we all live in. So like a combination of teaching civics, which for some reason in our educational institutions, we just stopped doing, like we just don't do it very much. It's not a core part of the curriculum anymore for a lot of high schools, for example, but combined with the kind of media literacy that sends people out into the world, understanding that not everything on the internet is true, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? right? Like some combination of those, like here's how our government and like democracy works and here are your expectations as a citizen in terms of participation, thinking about democracy as a verb, right? Like it's not just, I'm gonna work and get this one guy who's gonna fix everything into office. It's like, I have to actively participate to see the kind of goals and outcomes that I wanna see combined with, hey, we actually have a real personal responsibility to be people that understand how to communicate with each other, that understand how to have empathy with each other online, that understand how powerful these tools actually are. Like one of the things that I've been wrestling with the last few years is we don't, we have not actually, like I kind of compare us collectively to uh, Peter Parker in, in, in the Spider-Man story that like we got amazing powers overnight with these devices from the standpoint of history, like literally the last like 10 years. And yet we have not had our collective, like with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> moment, right? Like we just don't think about this in terms of its ability to do harm or good in the way that we should. So like teaching that kind of responsibility, I think is really important. Um, I think it's a tragedy how, how, some of our institutions have not enabled that more. Like we just, we still have, we are, 
I know we have this like crazy founding father and constitution reference, but we we're literally like running our country on a document that was that was created more than 200 years ago that didn't know Amazon would be a thing. I mean, it's just it's it's kind of crazy when you think about it. So like updating our actual institutions themselves, I think, and like democracy reform is one of the things that I'm the most honestly sad about when it comes to not having the Senate next year. Um, so I don't know, there's probably like three or four other things if I thought hard enough about it. But to me, that's a good, good start. Like, let's make our like, actual democratic environment more equitable and actually help us understand and wrap our heads around what it means to be a good citizen in a digital world. Yeah. By the way, have you seen on Amazon the show, uh, it's a staging of the Broadway play, uh, what the constitution means to me? No, I have it on my list. Somebody just was telling me about it last week. Is it good? Yeah, it is good. And I recommend it to everyone in the audience, too. Uh, it, um, there's a reference specifically when you talk about the Constitution being this you know, old document that uh, the, the woman, I can't think of her name, that's, that's doing this basically, you know, sort of fundamentally, it's a one-woman show, but she does have a few other players. Uh, but she's talking about how the, the framers, or at least some of the framers, never intended it to be a document that wouldn't be updated and replaced at a, yes. at a really foundational level, like not, not All just the time. amendments, you know, here and there, but with a re-understanding, like a, a recontextualization of where it fits in, That's in society, right. which, That's you know, right. yeah. that, that may be something that, that people who are more scholarly and more informed about this particular subject could debate, but it feels like that's a really sound starting point for a debate. And we should really yeah, understand I have read that, that exact thing from a lot of like constitutional scholars, especially in the last like month that we've been talking about the role of the Supreme Court mm -hmm. and originalism and how to interpret the Constitution. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's really worth people going and watching that and considering that, uh, that discussion and, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Maybe you don't agree with it when you watch it, but I think it's, I think it's worth, um, having that as a, as a thought provoker, as a starting point. So really quickly, uh, I find myself not watching those things cause it feels like so much emotional work and an already, like when somebody <laughs> told me to go watch that. I was like the elections next week, I'm going to put that off for a little bit. I'm Actually, there's enough going on right now. Yeah. That, and maybe, maybe now is not the time, but it was, I think leading up to the election, it was a really good time for me because it felt like it was a downtime moment, but also something that felt like it was, uh, a little bit engaged still. So yeah, maybe yeah. when you're ready for that. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say just uh, sort of a lightning round almost of like nuts and bolts. Do you do you think online voting is a way to go or should go back to paper? Is there blockchain? What what do you picture as, as the sort of nuts and bolts evolution of voting to, to make it more equitable, more trustworthy, you know, all of that? You know, so there's a lot of security concerns around online voting and mobile voting that have not been ironed out. And every election security you know, expert that I've read or listened to in the last few years has basically been like this to like anything being online until there's a lot more things that um, happen around security. Um, uh, you know, we just we have such a decentralized election process and a lot yeah. of people don't realize it like so many people are like we'll yell at the dnc because like someone in missouri screwed up some it's like no that's that's a missouri problem like they these are very very localized organizations that run all this um so you know i think before we get to thinking about will online voting make things more democratic i would like to see universal voter registration or even mandatory voting to me like 
there's many countries that have mandatory voting and have seen, um, you know, lots of positive outcomes. So if we if we thought, like, how can we remove the barriers and just make it easier on people to vote first, like universal registration? How about we move Election Day to a Saturday, not a random day in the middle of the week? We mandate or at least make it a mandatory like company holiday. Like there's so many things that we could do to just make it easier for people you know, on top of the like voter ID and signature requirements and all kinds of like random bureaucracy people have to navigate just to like exercise a constitutional right. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like there's, there's states that have really figured it out, like Oregon, you know, everything's yeah. and it's, <laughs> like, I Colorado's moved... done great mail-in voting for years. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely states that have done this well. Yeah. I, I moved to New York five years ago and uh, it was the first state I'd ever lived in that didn't have uh, early voting or absentee voting and, or that you would have to have a, a credible excuse to get an absentee ballot. And it was startling to me. I was just like, what? How is New York a state that doesn't have this figured out? But uh, yeah, there's there's so many kinks in so many parts of every state's election process. We do need to yeah. work that out. That's fair. Yeah, definitely. Uh, hey, before we run out of time, I want to make sure people know where they can find and follow you and your work online. Yeah, thank you. Um, you can follow me at Caleb Gardner on just about every social platform, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn. Although you and I know we both have kind of a contentious relationship with Facebook these days, so I'm not, not hanging out hanging out there as much as I used to. Um, that's probably the easiest way. Um, you can go to calebgardner.com, read more about my work, or 18coffees.com, read more about our work. Um, we're we're deep in this kind of um, you know mix of digital transformation and community organizing work on any given day, and so. You know, please do keep in touch. It'd be great to great to you know meet and hear from some of the people that were listening in. Yeah, and, and I want to with just the one or two minutes that remain, I want to give you a chance to end on an up note, an optimistic note. So <laughs> uh, one of one of the show the recurring show questions that I, I like to ask is is you know what when it comes to technology or data or digital experiences or the future of human experiences are you most optimistic about? What are you what do you look at in that sort of category and and feel most hopeful about? Oh, that's such a good question. You're asking me to find hope in a really like <laughs> stressful, like we're literally hey, you already hope. brought us a ton of hope in this episode. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I am probably the most optimistic about this is going to somebody feel out of left field, but um, I'm probably most optimistic about technology's ability to help us tackle big global problems like climate change. Like I, I'm I get really frustrated about that from a policy standpoint and even a like, I mean, talk about disinformation and like not sh having shared realities around big issues like climate change. I mean, insane. But I'm actually um, pretty bullish on um, technology's ability to solve and actually innovate around the reduction of carbon in our atmosphere, you know, electric vehicles, electric grid. And what's great about um, that is a lot of that's already being driven by a lot of the private sector around the world. So it's not as dependent on government as we think that it is. However, we still do need government policies to set the rules and regulations to make the kind of big leaps in that sector that we need to make. But, you know, I'm I'm definitely more optimistic about our ability to innovate around that than I am 
and some of my some of our sunrise movement or like other you know uh environmental activist friends yeah and and i guess to recap your wonderful points of hope you were talking about staying focused on the long term right keeping that long-term goal post in mind making sure you know what you believe in and what you're working toward yeah uh, yeah and then I, maintaining I that down, sense of urgency yeah maintain that sense of urgency and i i also wrote down when you said democracy is a verb i mean i think that mindset is probably what's going to help us make some progress in the next yeah in the years to come for sure well caleb thank you so much for bringing your uh your surprisingly optimistic viewpoint to us today <laughs> <laughs> really we, need, we need a dose of that don't we <laughs> we did we needed it well thank you for being here and uh i hope you're you and your family stay safe in chicago where also my family is and I will look forward to catching up with you in the future. Thank you all for tuning in and please everyone stay well and keep yourselves in good mental health. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to the Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com where you can also find more episodes or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.